All right, well, why don't you turn with me to the book of Haggai, or Haggai, however you pronounce it. I was thinking this week as I looked at this passage, I can, I can get fixated on the idea of second chances. Probably because I, I clearly remember times in my own life where I've made foolish and stupid decisions and, and I wanted a second try at it. I, I can be an expert at rehearsing my foolishness. But I'm also interested in second chances because I'm a minister. I minister to people and I, and I hear all the time of their foolish and sinful decisions that have brought harm to their lives. And I hope and pray that God would still be himself, and he promises that he would, that he'd be good and righteous and holy and just and perfect, yet at the same time, still give some way for them to make up for their wrong decisions. You know, when we reflect on our favorite stories or movies, we gravitate to those that talk about second chances. Disney has made a fortune with this storyline. Especially, I just thought, you know, and again, I gravitate to sports. I'm sorry if you're not a sports person. I won't go into great detail, but the sports films with Disney, every single one of them has this storyline. Second chances. The movie, The Rookie, if you saw that years ago, washed up high school baseball coach who gets a second chance at the majors. The Mighty Ducks with the coach who really messes up and gets a second chance with coaching this peewee hockey team. And and in fact, I'd surmise that every Disney movie has some storyline where the character has a second chance. We we love this. We we continue to buy this. So they continue to feed us this. Because deep down, we know that we don't measure up and we desperately want to. What about your life? Are there situations in your life, either at home or at school or at work or even here at the church, that you've simply made the wrong decision. You screwed up. You sinned. Have you failed in your marriage? Or in a friendship? Or has an opportunity passed by and you let it happen and, and it went by and you knew you needed to step up? Or perhaps you opened your mouth and spoke and now you're humiliated by what you said. Do you feel that there's circumstances in your life that there's no possibility of going back? The door looks closed and locked from your point of view. There's really no way forward. Let me take it to the spiritual realm and ask, do you feel that way in your relationship with God? I wonder if there's some that are here this morning, you've joined us in singing and the reading of scripture, even giving in the offering, but at the same time you feel that you've blown it with God. You know deep in your soul that you've ignored God this week. You've ignored him this month or perhaps this decade. You've abused your relationship with him and mistreated his grace again and again, and you feel that sting in your heart. You know, uh, on Sunday mornings in America, those that come to church, we, we work hard to not look as desperate as we feel inside. We put on the expression that we need to try, to try to make it through the day, but we know deep in our souls that things aren't right. And we put the facade on 
when he dressed it up to come in. And I want to tell you, you're welcome here. More than any other place in this planet, the church is for sinners. And we come equally to the foot of the cross. But friends, it's better to lose your facade than to lose your soul. We need to be honest before the Lord this morning. This is the message that the second half of Haggai chapter 1 is communicating to us. Last week we looked at the first 11 verses of the chapter, and this morning we'll look at the response. So I want to read the entire chapter, chapter of Haggai chapter 1, and so you can see again, be reminded again of the first 11 verses as the preacher Haggai shares with them, and then to see the response in the following 12 through 15. If you haven't already turned to Haggai 1, if you're using a Bible there that's, that's provided, it's on page 743, and I'm going to read chapter 1, starting in verse 1 all the way through the end, verse 15 of just chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai to the prophet Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the, to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of, their, of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God. Thank you for allowing us to meet with you this morning. I ask that you would fill me with your words as we open up the scripture 
and that you would give your people understanding and grace. Give them courage to walk with you. And may you be glorified in our midst this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The first point I want to highlight is God's word leads to fearing the Lord and repentance. God's word leads to fearing the Lord and repentance. The book of Haggai was written to document the response of the Jewish remnant that had traveled back to Jerusalem after the exile in Babylon. And in it we read of God's judgment on his people for neglecting his word and focusing on themselves instead of the temple rebuild. Their lives were spent for 16 years on building themselves, building and finishing their homes, and, and there was a problem. They were supposed to build a temple for God's glory, but instead they built their houses for their own glory. And they could really never make ends meet. They never had enough. They were never truly satisfied with the life they had built. They had ignored their covenant with God and they were unfaithful to him. It was like the story of Israel was on repeat. Over and again in the Old Testament. But God would not let them sit in silence anymore. You know, he would go to them through the prophet Haggai. And as we looked at last week, the first 11 verses is the call for God's people to consider their ways of life. Were they living like they knew God and that they loved him and wanted to serve him? Were they going to be faithful to God and build the temple like they had committed to, like God had commanded them to? See, God had gone to extraordinary lengths to get them out of Babylon, to bring them home. And were they going to follow through now with obedience to him? Well, we get the answer in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. The people heard the voice of God through the voice of Haggai. God spoke to his people and they listened. And God often chooses to deliver his words through a preacher. And this is what we have here in the book. And the people not only respond to the Lord's words, but they respond to the voice of Haggai, who stands as a representative of God. It says there, all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God in the words of Haggai the prophet. It's not that Haggai became God, but he spoke God's word to God's people. And God's words are designed to quickly and effectively cut through the mishmash and the chaos that fills our hearts and causes us to look at God, then to obey him. And God's word is enough to bring about obedience to God's will. And in God's providence, he calls Haggai to be the preacher of his, of his word. And, and the church, friends, the church will be built as God's truth is courageously preached and as we give ourselves to listen to it. And we are convicted by it. And we take it in looking at the word like a mirror and seeing ourselves and, and changing as a result of the word and its impact on our lives. And this is what our church and other congregations must not neglect, the preaching of the word. And if you, friends, neglect the work of listening to the word preached, if it will undermine the church. And if the posture of your heart is to constantly question the preacher, unwilling to listen to the word preached, fighting against the word without considering its truthfulness, then you'll be in a dangerous position. See here, the people take heed to the word preached to them by Haggai. 
They don't reject him even though he confronts them. But I want you to notice also that it was the leaders that respond first. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obey the voice of the Lord their God. God worked through the leadership first. It's no small thing that the people, when they are challenged by God's words, the remnant then repent, but only after the high priest, their spiritual leader, first models repentance. And there's something for us to learn here. Good leadership leads by example in humility and obedience to God's word. And perhaps sin is not taken seriously in churches today because leaders in churches do not take sin seriously. It's necessary for us as your pastors to know and understand sin and to confess and repent of sin when we're made aware. And when it's a public sin, there needs to be a public confession and repentance. And so I'm going to call out my pastor brothers here. When you sin, not if you sin, but when you sin, the first step is to take it seriously like the leaders here do in Haggai and to repent. To turn away from it and to turn towards Christ in obedience to his word. As leaders of Christ's church, we need to be chief repenters. How else will the people that we are leading learn how to repent unless we're able to do so in front of them? Men, husbands, you need to be chief repenters in your home. If you sin, brother, don't wait to be caught by your wife or your kids. Confess and repent. Men, if you're in the midst of a disagreement or an argument with your wife, or if you've sinned in word or deed, be the first to repent. Confess your sin and repent. Don't wait for your wife. Men, humble yourself. Admit what you've done. Turn from your sin, confess it and repent from it. Lead your wife by loving her more than you love yourself. She is a gift from the Lord, men. Fathers, how will your children learn how to repent if you don't show them? I'm sure you, you sin in front of your kids. Is anyone willing to raise their hand and say they don't? We sin. And if you sin, brother, you need to confess your sin and repent in front of your kids. And I don't care if your kids are growing out of the house. If you have kids in the house at dinner before you eat, if you know of any sin, maybe not towards them, but in your life, from your day at work, show your kids in your prayer what confession looks like. Do it in front of them. Teach them. And even if nothing specific comes to mind, I'm sure we have plenty to confess. Confess our faithlessness, our, our inability to lead perfectly, our lack of patience. We have plenty to confess, men, on a daily basis, and we need to make it a practice 
to do it in front of our children, to teach them. And if you've sinned directly against your children, you need to repent in front of them to your children. Christian brother, we should never say that we live perfectly in front of our kids, so let's be examples of what a Christian is and be quick to confess our sins and repent of them, teaching them what it looks like. It says, all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them. And he says, then the people feared the Lord. They feared him. It's hard to translate this in English. There are a few different ways to understand it. It doesn't mean terror or horror, but, but it's that of showing the people we're aware of God. And my best translation is that the people were startled by the presence of God. They woke up by God to his presence. And they were living in a stupor, blinded by their sin and disobedience to the word of God. And it came to them through Haggai and it woke them up. It startled them to be alert again of of God. And their fear here is a picture of affection and worship driven by a keen awareness of God's character and his presence in their lives. And I'm sure, I'm positive, because they're human like me, that they they were being called out in sin made them uncomfortable. See, God's word always makes us uncomfortable when we're harboring sin. Fearing the Lord here, though, is a waking up means to show reverence to God in other lives. It means to respect him and to listen to him, to be now fully aware of him. It means listening to God's word when it's shared, when it's taught and preached. Friends, do you listen when God's word is shared? Do you pay attention when you read the Bible? The people here listen to Haggai and respect the Lord and his word spoken through the prophet Haggai. And the people become intimately aware of who God is, his holiness and his incredible power, and they're compelled to obey him. And it's through the preaching of God's word. That's why it's important to come and sit under the preaching of God's word, to listen when the sermon is preached. That's how our church will grow. And I don't mean numerical. I'm not in it to fill up the parking lot or put people in seats. Spiritual growth. And it's not when I speak, but when God speaks to his people through the word preached. That's why our services are planned the way they are. There is purpose to our Sunday gatherings here at Edgewood Bible Church. It should be word-driven with the goal of building up the whole body and glorifying God. Paul writes to us in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And we teach and admonish one another when we sing to the Lord. And so we, we should sing out, we should praise God And when we do that, we're building up one another. And everything we do here in this place on Sunday morning should be with that in view to to build each other up and to glorify God. And how different is our gathered worship now in the New Covenant than when God's people in the Old Testament? Instead of only gathering a few times a year, no, we gather each week. And instead of meeting in the temple in Jerusalem, no, we gather in local churches wherever we live. 
Instead of God's presence being restricted to the holy of holies and guarded by the priest, God now dwells in all of his people by his spirit and Christ is present when we gather. And we gather together each week, in case you're confused, every Sunday we're here to hear the word, to listen to the word preached, to pray the word, to sing the word, to see the word. That's the ordinances through, through the baptism that happens and through the Lord's Supper. We see the word. And all these things are meant to build up the body in love so that we would all attain to the maturity in Christ that Paul says in Ephesians. And so friends, it's no small thing for you to come to church each week as the Lord provides. It's showing obedience to his word. Showing love, adoration to him. So I want to encourage you, don't neglect the local church. Don't neglect the word of God preached. Make it a priority for your life. What kept them from obeying the Lord, though? Since they lacked the fear of the Lord, and I believe they possessed the fear of man. The fear of man is so common in our lives, even, even in how we respond to conflict. <clears throat> We can demonstrate our fear of man more than our fear of God when we refuse to address sin in others or avoiding difficult conversations so that people won't have a negative opinion towards us. For some, they would rather continue to be wronged by someone than to confront and to deal biblically with that sin. And you may believe that you're being a peacemaker not wanting to stir the pot, but too often we are a peace lover because you would rather have people like you then deal with an issue. And friends, that's the fear of man. We fear man when we fear to be exposed of who we truly are. We fear man when we fear we might lose what we've gained on our own. We fear man when we do something motivated so that people won't lose respect for us. And the Bible is littered with examples of the fear of man. From Abraham, fearing man, fearing Pharaoh, that he would kill him because his wife was beautiful. And so he told a half-truth, which is really a whole truth, or a whole lie, excuse me. He lied to, out of fear. Moses feared man when he sh- sh- strikes the rock, and his anger with the people caused him to fear them more than to trust and fear God. And Aaron, right, we just read this this morning, right? If you're reading the Bible along in Exodus, Aaron gives in to the Israelites' demands to fashion idols of gold. He fears man. Then he defends his actions before Moses. And we looked at this a couple years ago. King Saul feared man, oh, so many times. Especially, though, responding in jealousy to David when he sees his kingdom falling through his own hands and going to David. And if you read the scriptures with with this lens looking for it, you'll see it time and time again. There's more examples in the scriptures. And I think it's there because we all struggle with the fear of man in some way. And friends, it will do you well to, to root out these issues that linger in your heart. And friends, I don't stand before you innocent and blameless. I am a man and moment by moment need of God's grace as he exposes more crevices in my heart where the fear of man has seeped in. And I need to confess those and and turn from those and fear God. 
One book that has been incredibly helpful outside of the scriptures and rooting out these issues in my heart is titled, When People Are Big and God is Small. I encourage you to get a copy if this is an issue that you recognize in your life. It's written by Ed Welch, When People Are Big and God is Small. When, when we're walking in disobedience and are confronted by God's word, our response should be to lean into God, to fear him. Not in terror, but in a affection for his love to, to us and bringing truth to us so that we can respond. And this is what we see with God's people. God's word leads to, the, to fearing the Lord with repentance and eventual obedience to his word. And when we've been confronted by God's word, what will we choose? Will you obey God's word? Friends, try to spend time in identifying what hinders you from obeying God. Friends, what are you doing in your life right now to cultivate the fear of the Lord? And what are you doing to remove the fear of man? I believe that our obedience to God's word naturally flows out of reverence for God's person. And we understand who God truly is, we want to joyfully obey him in all things and we'll naturally trust him. We'll instinctively love him and his word. Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Have you become wise, friends? Kids that are here, thank you for being here. You guys are good listeners but I have a job for you. I want you to go home this afternoon and ask your parents what the fear of the Lord is. Over lunch or in the car ride, ask them. Ask your mom and dad and then listen to them and then try to emulate what you see in your parents as they seek to fear the Lord. That's a free one for you, parents. You're welcome. I pray that it's a fruitful afternoon. And I pray as you preach the word to your kids, they will understand it. They'll seek to obey it. My encouragement to you parents is don't waste this passage. You've been given a glorious opportunity. Now apply it to your heart and the, the kids' hearts that live in your home. So first, God's word leads us to fear the Lord and repentance. And second, God's work in his people leads to his glory. Verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. The verse, again, begins by affirming that the message was coming through a man, Haggai. He is the mailman, the speaker, the tool that God uses to communicate his word to his people, and it comes to reorient the remnant of the Jews to the reality of the Lord's perspective. And God would use his man Haggai to confront his people because the message from the Lord is this, I am with you, declares the Lord. His promise to be with them is no small thing, but this is a pattern that we see with the Lord to his people. And I wonder if the Israelites feared what would happen next. See, the memories of their exile in Babylon wasn't that long ago. It was still very fresh in their minds. It would be easy for the Jewish people to wonder if God had forgotten them, if he was turning away from them, but God hadn't turned from them. He would be faithful to his promise, and he would communicate that through Haggai, that he would be with them. God has done this 
throughout the Old Testament. To Jacob in Genesis 28, he promises, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. To Joshua in Joshua 1.9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. To Isaiah, he said to his people, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And Zephaniah 3.17 and Judges 6.15 and Jeremiah 1. And friends, there's more and more reminders that God is with his people. The God who was with them is the God who is for them so that they can find courage to obey him. God's presence brings comfort to the Christian, even today. In Matthew's gospel, he ends with the same promise. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christian, as you serve the Lord by making disciples in your home or at work or in your neighborhood, Christ promises to be with you. And the task here for the Jew during this time is to rebuild the temple, and it must have seemed impossible to them. But the word of God comes to them to bring comfort that God was going to fulfill his promise to be with them, enabling their work and helping them overcome the obstacles that stood in the way of fulfilling the task that God had given them. God brings his children comfort, just like a father holding the hand of their child when they're fearful. God would come alongside his people to help. I don't know about you, but that verse brings comfort to me. But I wonder, for those that are here this morning who do not consider themselves a Christian, I wonder if the subject of God's presence doesn't bring a comfort to you at all. The idea of all-knowing God who sees not only all that you do, but he sees your thoughts. He understands your motives. He knows all that you do, that you can't hide from him. I can understand that bringing, that doesn't bring comfort to you at all, but maybe terror. God knows your sin, your rejection of him, and you need to understand your sin. The Bible teaches that God has made you like him in his image, but you rebelled against his authority in your life. You think, how how have I rebelled? Think about the last time you did something you knew was wrong. The guilt you felt at that time was, according to the Bible, the testimony of your God-given conscience concerning the sin you committed that was essentially against God himself, even if the sin was committed against another or yourself. It's sin. And sin explains the many problems in our lives and the many problems that we cause for others. It's sin that provides the backdrop for God's dramatic judgments in the Old Testament. It's sin for which we desperately and eternally need forgiveness and deliverance from. 
And it's sin that Christ, though fully human like us, entirely avoided so that he might die as a sinless sacrifice and provide the forgiveness and salvation that you and I need. Oh, friend, that you are here. I'm glad you're here. And you are welcome. You are welcome every week. May I encourage you to examine yourself. Pray that God would give you eyes to see the truth about yourself. Pray that he would help you see and confess your sins. Primarily your sin of rejection. And pray that he would then grant you, as it says in the book of Acts, repentance unto life. Turn from your sin and trust in yourself and turn to Jesus Christ. Friend, there are many here that would love to talk to you today if you have further questions. Just find the one that's smiling. We would love to sit down and walk you through the gospel so that you would understand your need of Christ. Well, the Lord responded to his people. It says in verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. The words, to stir up, draws on the imagery of sleepiness. Like those roused from slumber to participate in an activity from which they otherwise would have been absent. So these people have been roused from their spiritual inattentiveness to participate in the urgent task before them, to rebuild the temple. They were spiritually lethargic, and God moves to awake them to the work that's ahead. Friends, God is the one who does this. And the people respond to God's work in their spirit. These, these verses here are a beautiful picture of what the Bible calls repentance. The remnant, those that are left, changed their selfish priorities in life and they fear the Lord and obeyed him. This is what ministry is all about. And you look over the aspects of repentance that we can see in the text there in verse 12. There's an activity of repentance. The people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God after disobeying him. And then later in verse 12, there's a, the drive for repentance because the people feared the Lord. They recognized the Lord. They had proper respect for him, acknowledging him. And last, there's the cause of repentance. And that's in verse 14. The Lord stirred up the spirit. I don't know if you recognize this, but repentance is not merely a human work. The Lord works repentance in our souls. He always has. He stirs up our spirits to turn away from sin and to turn towards him. It is a work of God, and so only he can receive praise and glory for our lives turning to follow him. And he doesn't leave us, right? No, the promise is there. I am with you. And the people respond. They begin working in the house of the Lord, their host. And they found a, a much better choice for their lives that is long-lasting and enduring than investing and remodeling their own house. Friends, none of, none of this fruit of repentance is going to happen if you're hardened to the correction and listening to the word and others about how you think and live. If your basic thought process for your life, friend, is this, that I'm good, 
I don't need to hear it, then you're walking towards a further and lasting hardening to the Lord and to his word. And you're foolishly trying to live life on the basis of what you already know. You've checked out of learning. And by your actions and your words, you're communicating that you're, you're wise enough. That you've arrived. And this is a dangerous place to be. Friends, you need to understand the blessing of conviction. It's a blessing in our lives that the Lord convicts us. And you need to lean into the Lord when there is a pricking of your conscience. Friends, do you defend your sin? Why? Why would you defend a thing that's only there to destroy your life? Sin seeks only to kill and destroy. Why would you defend it? Don't do it. Don't stand in front of it and protect it. And I've seen it, friends. You've seen it too the, with people that are close to you. When they're confronted with their sin and the word of God, they get defensive over their words or their actions. Friends, it's pure foolishness to defend your sin. There is no chance that your sin is innocent. So don't waste your time defending it. See, we need to respond like the people do here. They admit their sin. They repent of their sin. They turn away from their sin and turn towards God. And he stirs up them, this obedience of his word to him. God does this. So how do we cultivate lives of repentance? Let me give you some, some practical steps here, okay? This is not your notes. How do you cultivate lives of repentance? First, we read the word. We read the word, we consume it, we apply it. See, the only way that you're going to find out if you're going the wrong direction is to understand how to go to the right direction. And that's what we, the Bible seeks to do so much of the time is, is showing you the way to live. It corrects us. It shows us how to go. So we need to read the word. That's a marker of a Christian. One that reads the word. Second, we should pray more. Now, I didn't say we need to learn how to pray. I'm sure most everyone in this room has prayed before, but not everyone in this room has learned how to pray and to pray more. And so look for ways to establish healthy patterns of prayer for your life and pray that God would stir up affection for him. So whether that's praying in the morning right after you read the word or on your commute into work or when you're washing dishes or folding laundry, or when you sit down to eat, or when you come home, find a way to establish healthy patterns of prayer that God would stir your affections for obedience to him. And then fill your prayer list of things that are more than yourself. And talk to your family and to your church friends and find ways to pray for others. Perhaps even texting people during the week to find out how you can pray for them. And then praying that the Lord would stir up their spirit to follow him. Third, read more about God. And we live in a day in which there are so many good books that talk about who God is. And there are many that are available to us to understand, to read more of him. 
authors who have taken the Word of God and organized it in a way that we can learn more and worship God. A few books, just two that I'll mention, is one, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, and two, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. If you haven't read these, you need to, friends. These both books will stir your soul and help you cultivate a life of repentance when you learn more about the God you serve. And last, the fourth thing, seek out relationships with other godly people around you. You are surrounded by people who love the Lord, who are looking to follow him. So don't neglect the relationships that could be cultivated right here. Develop a relationship with someone in the church. Pray for one another. Encourage one another in your walk with the Lord. Review the sermon each week with a friend. When I challenge you with questions in the sermon, spend time each week asking each other those questions. Cultivate that relationship. So my hope is that this church family will be a blessing to one another, that we have relationships in this body outside of this service. So get to know one another. Spend time with one another. Well, we need to wrap it up. Perhaps if, if you've read Haggai 1 along with me, and you might come away with the idea that really the answer to all of this and the issues in your life is you just need to obey the Lord better. That you need to obey the Lord better than Israelites. Maybe that's how you come to the conclusion. And maybe you think, well, now I have a second chance. And I'm going to make good on this promise to follow God. I'm going to obey him in every way better. Perhaps that's what you want to take away from this passage. That's what you're wanting to set your heart on this week. I'm just going to try more. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to obey quicker. I'm going to be more faithful. And perhaps you think that's what God wants of you. You might even believe that Jesus died for you. And now you just need to get your act together. And this is a second chance to do something with it. Jesus died, the slate is clean, now I can work, now I can do it. I can pull it off on my own. Friends, that's like giving my four-year-old a driver's test. Putting her behind the wheel, seeing if she can pass the driver's test. She'll fail, it won't be pretty. Now I could show her some mercy, I could show her a few techniques, give her another try the next day. But she'll still fail. Even if she was an advanced four-year-old with really long legs, she would still fail. And there's zero chance for a fallen human to pass the test of God's law. There is no one righteous. No, not one. So if there was no way a human could obey God perfectly, then why would we tell people that all you need is a second chance to get it right? See, this mindset points people away from the true gospel to a false hope. And thankfully, the gospel of Jesus tells the opposite. And what makes the gospel revolutionary to every other religion on earth is that you can't do enough. See, as sinners, we don't need a second chance. We need a perfect substitute. One who got it right the first time, perfectly. He didn't need multiple chances to obey. 
Instead, he obeyed the law perfectly from beginning to end. One who never sinned in word or deed. And one who took our sins upon himself, a righteous one who died for sinners like me. Because of the forgiveness of sin and the imputed righteousness of Jesus, we don't have to earn redemption through a series of second chances. Jesus secured our redemption through his life, death, and resurrection, and his perfect perfection then is credited to the Christian's account. Friend, if you are in Jesus Christ, you stand before God perfect. Not because of you. Not because of a second chance that you capitalized on. It's because of Jesus Christ. And it's because of Jesus Christ that we can sing with no guilt in life and no fear in death because of the power of Christ in us. So friends, I'm going to pray and then we're going to stand and we're going to sing together. We're going to sing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for your gracious presence with us this morning. You are a good God. Thank you for not leaving us in our sin. Thank you for not leaving us to ourselves to try to save ourselves because we would fail and you know that. And if we're honest this morning, we all need your grace and forgiveness because we all fall short of meeting the demands of the law. We need Christ. Thank you for sending him on our behalf. Thank you for showing us grace when we rejected you. Help us to love and serve you. Help us as your children to be quick to confess and repent of sin. And God, I ask that you would use this church family, our church family, to bring you honor and glory in Edgewood and throughout the world. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.